of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All right, good morning, y'all. It's so good to see you. My name is Andrew. Uh, I get to serve as pastor here. Uh, hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, I officially can give you my pastoral blessing to now ce- begin celebrating Christmas, all right, because it is post-Thanksgiving, so listen to the music, hang the decorations and all that. I, I, I kid about that, but uh, do whatever you want at your house. Ask for me and the Lord, or me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the way that goes. Um, <laughs> So, uh, man, we are round in the corner. Next week, we are going to kick off our December Christmas series called His Name Shall Be, and we're going to be looking at that uh, incredible prophecy in Isaiah 9, verse 6, that says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Uh, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we're going to be looking at that over the next few weeks. But today we are wrapping up this series in this incredible, this most incredible chapter of of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. It's been called Life in the Spirit. And so I want to repeat uh, a phrase that I said, I think, back in week number three of this series. And it's this, God wants us to feel secure in our relationship with him so that we'll live freely and boldly for him. Uh, he wants us to feel secure in a relationship with him so we can live freely and boldly for him. What I mean is this, is that when you both understand and internalize the truths that we see in Romans chapter 8, okay, not just know them, but internalize them in your heart, uh, it, it will give you supreme confidence. It gives you all kind of confidence in your relationship with God, and you can begin to live more freely and boldly for him. And this is what Romans 8 really is is all about. So last week, we we were in verses uh, 26 through 30 and introduced this thought of, or this idea, the golden chain of redemption. Uh, We saw that in those last few verses of of Romans 8, the golden chain of redemption. It's It's made up of five unbreakable links. Uh, God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. So let me give you a quick crash course if you missed that. Uh, God foreknew, in other words, in, in eternity past, he chose whom he would set his love upon. He, he chose to set his love upon you. And if he foreknew you, he predestined you. In other words, his destiny for you, he predetermined that you and I in Christ would be conformed to the image of his son. So whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called, which means uh, he, he called out to you and by his irresistible grace drew you to himself and you responded to him in repentance and faith. This is what the Bible calls his effectual or effective call. He called and you responded. Your dead spirit came to life. So whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called whom he called, he justified. And we'll see that again in this, this morning. We've seen it throughout Romans 8. Justified means he's declared us righteous in the sight of God, not by our merits or our work, but upon Christ's merit, his work on our behalf. 
And if he's called you, he's justified. If he's justified you, he's glorified you. He will glorify you. It's a future activity or future event that he speaks. Again, like Andrew mentioned, he speaks in the past tense because it's certain. So if any one of these five things is true of you, all five of them are true of you. That this is an unbreakable chain. And so some of you may have a relationship with God this morning. Um, you've, you have responded to him in faith. This is true of you. And this chain is unbreakable. And yet, I, I don't want to miss the fact that maybe you're in this room and you, don't, you have questions about your standing with God, about your relationship with God. Uh, I want to say this, that God is always in the business of calling people to himself and inviting you to himself. And so maybe even this morning, God would give you some clarity on who, on who he is and how much he loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. Uh, but this is what we've been talking about in Romans 8. Today is going to be a little simpler in terms of our content, but it's going to be just as, as powerful. This final passage, we're going to be in verses 31 through 39, uh, which if you've got a Bible, you can begin to turn there. We'll read that together in a few minutes. Romans 8, 31 through 39. This is the conclusion of this incredible chapter. It's kind of a summary of sorts. And so what, what I'm calling this morning is this, the Spirit will take you all the way home. The Spirit will take you all the way home. Question for you. Have you ever been out somewhere and just like you're at the point where you're just like, man, I'm ready to get home. You ever been like that? Maybe some of you are at Thanksgiving. You're like, this is awesome. All the food is good. All right, it's time to go, it's time to go home. All right, I've had enough of my family. Or maybe you've been out Black Friday shopping and you're like, I've had enough I'm done. I need to get home. Um, you know, maybe it was a road trip. Um, you know, maybe it was a vacation. For me, I don't think there's ever been a vacation that I haven't really looked forward to. And then at some point in the vacation, been like, okay, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to sleep in my bed. I'm ready to get back to my routine. Um, here is what Romans 8 kind of ends or concludes with. God gives us, he's been throughout Romans 8, giving us assurance that we are secure. If we are in Christ, we are secure in our standing with him. And as he closes out Romans 8, uh, he gives us this assurance that he will see us through to the very end. He will see us through to the very end. He will not let us go. And so our every longing to arrive safely at home, and I'm not talking about our physical homes, I'm talking about our eternal home, I'm talking about what we sung about this morning, our every longing to arrive safely at home, if you're in Christ, will come to pass. And so I want to invite you all to stand with me. We're going to read Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. If you have a Bible, read along with me. If, if you don't, just follow along on the screen. This is God's word. It is truth. It is life. Romans 8, 31 through 39, here is what Paul declares. He says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Amen. And so, God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing uh, you, you, yourself, your attributes, your qualities to us, your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your love. God, thank you for this incredible passage that reminds us, that informs us that there's nothing that could separate us from your love. And so, God, I pray that as we dig into this passage this morning, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would uh, help us to understand things that maybe um, we've forgotten about, maybe things that we don't fully understand. God, would you be our teacher this morning? God, would you encourage us? Would you, in ways that we need to be challenged, would you challenge us? God, for those who may be in this room that don't even know you, God, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do by your spirit, which is draw people to you, help them to understand your great love for them. God, would we be encouraged, would we be reminded that you, by your spirit, will take us all the way home. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this morning that we can worship you together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you all have a seat? So Romans 8, 31 through 39, I'm going to end this series with three kind of final truths for us, for us. These are three things for us that we need to hear and to know. One is kind of set in the, the positive, two are kind of framed in a negative sense, and yet all three of these things are, are such good news for all of us. So here's the first thing, it's this, God is for us. God is for us. Us, verses 31 and 32. I'm going to read those again. Paul, he begins with this question. It kind of wraps up this, this, this whole chapter. He says, what then shall we say to these things? What, what, what does this have to do with how we're living? What, what is the, the summary of all of this? What's the conclusion? And then he begins to ask these, these questions. If you notice, he asks question after question here, and they're all, they're all rather unanswerable. Right? There's no real answer. There's no, no, no satisfactory answer to any of these questions. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? So let me clarify before we move further into this. Those two, that two-letter word that we see throughout this passage, the word us. Who, who is the us? that he's speaking to, because you see that word multiple times. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The us that he's speaking to, the same us uh, that he's been speaking to throughout Romans 8, that it's for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are saved, those who have put their faith in Christ, those who are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. He says, this is for you. Uh, but the reason I want to bring this up, and, and you probably hear me say this often, I think it's important that we always kind of remind ourselves of this when we're reading the New Testament, that, that it's not just speaking to individuals, it's speaking to a collective group, speaking to not just you, but, but us. And, and so when we read the Bible, there are certainly things that apply individually to us, but but most of the New Testament is written to churches and to the, the people of God. He says, God is for us. God is for you, but God is for, 
for us. He is on our side. And I want to make sure you hear this this morning. God is for us. God is not against you. If you are in Christ, God is not against you. So all of us are going to go through things that maybe make us question, like, God, why this? I don't understand this. Why is this going on in my life? And, and that is certainly always okay to ask God, like, why? God, I don't understand this. But if you are in Christ, we need to be able to ask those questions with the firm foundation, like the underlying knowledge that God is not against you. God is for you. And so when these difficult things come, you can ask, God, why is this? I don't understand this. I don't get this. But know this, God doesn't bring or allow these things into your life because he is against you. Are you hearing me? He's not against you. But let me take it even a step further. He's not just not against you. He is not neutral about his feelings towards you. He's not just kind of like on the fence, like, eh, some days I'm okay with you, some days I'm not. Like, he is, he is for you. He is not against you. He is not neutral about you. He is for you. He is for us. And it goes on in verse number 32 to say that, that he graciously provides. Look back at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously? I love that word. How will he not also with him graciously, graciously give us all things? In other words, he already has provided for you. He already has. He always will. He already has. He always will. He already gave us everything. He already gave us his best in his son. Why? So then why would he withhold anything else from us if he was already willing to give us his very best? And I don't, I don't know about you, but whenever I, um, whenever I share with people, um, if I'm sharing something that I have, uh, I, my tendency is that I, uh, confession here, I, I'll hold back the best for myself. You know what I'm saying? Like if I'm digging in, like yesterday I'm digging into like the leftover pizza pile from Friday night, from our Friday night pizza uh, and movie night. Uh, I'm looking for the best pieces with all the good stuff on it. I'm like, I don't, I'm first to it. My kids can get the leftovers. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, They do the same to me. So I'm, you know, fair game. Um, But listen, God doesn't do that with us. He hasn't done that with us. Even his less than, than best would be far better than our best, right? And yet it says that he did not spare even his own son. So why would he not with him graciously give us all things? John Stott said it this way. He said, Paul here argues that since God has already given us the supreme and costliest gift of his own son, how can he fail to lavish every other gift Upon us. In giving his son, he gave everything. Check this out. The cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. This is what Paul is saying in verse number 32. The cross, what God has already done for us in giving us Christ, that is the guarantee of his, his continuing, unfailing generosity. 
He's already given us his best. Why would he not continue to provide for us? And see why there's, there's, this is an unanswerable question. Like, why would he not? This is a rhetorical kind of a question. God is for us. Here's the second thought, and this is where it kind of becomes negative and yet still, again, good news. There is no condemnation for us. There is no condemnation for us. Verses 33 and 34. Paul says, who shall, again, he's asking these questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In other words, who's going to accuse God's elect? That's a term we kind of brought up last week when we talk about God foreknowing, God, you know, in eternity past, choosing who he's going to set his love upon. So if you are in Christ, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are part of what the Bible calls God's elect. He has elected you to to salvation. And the question is this, who shall bring uh, any charge against God's elect? Who can accuse you? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So there is no condemnation for us. If that sounds familiar, it's because we've already covered this ground. This is a callback to verse number one, Romans 8.1, where Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's, n- there's no accusations, there's no condemnation for you if you are in Christ. He, 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 so he starts out the chapter with this idea that there's no condemnation, and here he repeats it. In fact, when you walk through Romans 8, as we have, you'll see by my count, at least three times here, where Paul brings up this idea of our justification. Our justification. He addresses it three times. He addresses it back in verses one, two, three, and four. He talks about no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus because he's already taken the condemnation for us, right? We saw last week in verse 30, it talks about those whom he Pre, uh, he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified. So he brings up that whole thing of justification again. And then here, as, he, as we kind of bring this chapter to, clo- to a close, he brings it up again. He asks these two questions that are related to our justification. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect and who is to condemn? Uh, so what, what Paul is doing, he brings up this idea of justification again. And again, at the risk of repeating myself, uh, even though I think this is important, I think it's important for us to always be reminded and say things over and over again because we need them to sink in. This word justification, it's a legal term that means to be declared righteous, to be declared righteous. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we deserve. It's something that is spoken or declared over us. Justification. This is so important. And Paul, over and over throughout Romans 8, really throughout the book of Romans, keeps coming back to this this reality of our justification. You have been, in Christ, declared righteous. So why does he keep coming back to this idea? It's because it's at the heart of the gospel. And the gospel is this. You and I don't do anything anything in order to earn the favor or deserve the love of God. No, it's by his grace and his mercy that he has chosen to set his love upon us. This is the gospel. You can't be good enough. You can't come to church enough. You can't give enough money. You can't be a good enough person to earn it. Because if you could 
earn it, if you could achieve it or deserve it, you could and I could lose it. And he says, no, 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 I want you to be secure in this. I have done the work. It's not your merit. It's not your good works that gains it. It's not your bad works that loses it. I did the work and it's based upon me and my work and I have declared you righteous. And so he brings this up over and over and over again because he wants us to be rooted in the truth of the gospel. And so he brings up justification. And what he says here in this passage is that Christ has rescued us from accusation and condemnation. He has rescued us from accusation and condemnation. Listen now, throughout our lives, over and over and over, many times over, we will hear many accusations. We will hear lots of accusations from the enemy of God. We will hear accusations from other people. We will hear accusations even from our own hearts about, ourse about ourselves. You're not good enough. You're not holy or righteous enough. You're not doing enough good. You're not lovable enough. We will hear these accusations. And, and often we will, we will feel frequent condemnation, right? We will feel condemned by, again, the enemy who lives to accuse us, by others who will, will condemn us. We will feel condemnation inwardly in our own hearts. So we will hear many accusations and feel frequent condemnation. But all of those accusations and all of that condemnation fail and fall short because Christ has rescued us from accusation and condemnation. How? How? He goes on, he mentions four words here. Verse number 34, he says, Christ Jesus is the one who, and then he gives us four things. He says, first, Christ is the one who died. Christ is the one who died. And again, he is going right back to the gospel, y'all. So don't, don't, lose, don't, don't lose track of this. He says, Christ is the one who died. So what Paul is pointing out here is that all of our sin, all of our sins deserve wrath and judgment and condemnation. All, all of our sin does. And yet Christ died taking our sin upon himself in our place for us. Romans 8.3 says that he condemned sin in the flesh, in his own flesh. He condemned sin. He took our condemnation. And so he says, who's going who's gonna to accuse you? Who's going to condemn you? Because Christ has died. He took he died to take your sin upon himself. And so the answer is there's no one. There's no one who can condemn you or accuse you. Christ is the one who died. He is the one who was raised. More than that, he says, more than just dying, he was raised for you. So I think this is important. Uh, you know, whenever I talk about or think about the resurrection of Christ, um, and I'm going to do it this morning, I promise you, I like always fumble my words when talking about he rose from the dead or, you know, he is risen from the dead uh, because it's something that, you know, we know Christ is powerful, that he has risen from the dead. He has a power to come from death to life. But here's this other phrase, which is who has, who was raised Okay, so when we use that phrase, it's not saying that Christ raised himself, saying that somebody else did that work. So what other person would raise Jesus from the dead? God the Father, right? God the Father. 
God raised him from the dead. So why is this important? Some of you go, well, that's a matter of semantics. Did he rise like himself or did God raise him from the dead? This is why this language is, is so important. Christ Jesus is the one who was raised because of his resurrection. What that indicates for us, what that tells us is that his sacrifice, his death was satisfactory to God the Father, that God accepted his, his, his death, his burial, he accepted his, his taking our sin upon himself and he accepted it and he has is, he is, he is accepted it as the only satisfactory means of our justification. You see, sometimes we, we, we often talk about, well, Jesus loves you, he died for you. Amen, absolutely, yes, yes, yes. He loves you, he died for you. But listen, y'all, that's, that's an incomplete gospel. He died for you and he was raised for you. If he did not raise from the, if he did not rise, raise, be raised, see, I just did it, all right? If he wasn't raised from the dead, we could not be justified. We could not be declared righteous. God had to approve and accept that sacrifice by raising him from the dead. I want to take you to Romans 4. He, he talked about this a little earlier in the book of Romans. Paul said this, he's, he's talking about Abraham and Abraham's faith being counted for righteousness. And then he kind of transitions to us, Romans 4, 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who, Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses. In other words, he died for our sins, right? To cleanse us of our sins and raised for our what? Blah, 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 blah. Justification, right? He was raised for our justification. So because Jesus not just died for our sins, but because God raised him from the dead, we can be justified. We can be declared righteous. And so he says, we've been rescued from accusation and condemnation because Christ is the one who died. He is the one who was raised. He goes on to say this, he... He is the one who is at the right hand of God. So what does this mean? We see this, this phrase throughout scripture that Jesus is at the right hand of God. And you know what position he is, he is taking at the right hand of God? Anybody know? He's not standing. He's seated. Y'all ever gotten done with a long day of work and all you want to do is come home and stick your tired behind on a chair in your lazy boy recliner. You know what I'm talking about? You want to go home and you want to rest. This is what it means that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. What this tells us is that Jesus' work of atoning for our sin is finished. He's done. There's no more work to be done to secure our salvation. He is seated at the right hand of God. This is a place, by the way, of, of supreme importance and power and significance. He's seated there, but he's not just seated there. He goes on to say that he is seated there. He is the one who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. In other words, he is now our advocate. He is now our high priest that is interceding on our behalf to God the Father. Listen, y'all, he is at the right hand of God. And as the enemy and as your heart and as others accuse you before the Father, here is Jesus in the Father's ear interceding for you. He is interceding for you. And last week, uh, we saw that the Holy Spirit is within you is, is interceding. When you don't know how to pray as you ought, 
It says the Holy Spirit is interceding for you with groanings too deep for words, right? What an incredible thing. The Holy Spirit was within us interceding. And then last week I went to Rome, or Hebrews 7 that says that Jesus is, is interceding for us in heaven. And yet here we are a few verses later in Romans and Paul brings up again the fact that not only is the Holy Spirit in us interceding for us, but Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for you. In other words, he's reminding, listen, he's reminding God of the final verdict on your life and my life, that God, it's finished. Remember, I paid the price. No one can condemn, no one can accuse you because I have finished the work on their behalf. And he is constantly interceding for us. And so who can accuse you? Who can bring a charge against you? Who can condemn you? Paul says, nobody. It's because Christ has died, was raised. He's at the right hand of God and he is interceding for you. So there is no condemnation. God is for us, number one. Number two, there is no condemnation for us. Here's the third and final thing this morning. There is no separation for us. There is no separation for us. So chapter eight begins with no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Chapter 8 ends with, there is no separation for those who are in Christ. In other words, we can never be separated from the love of God. Now listen, you know this as well as I do, that life does beat you up and will bloody you along the way, right? It beats us up, it bloodies us along the way. There's nothing we can do to escape. We even saw that earlier in the book of Romans, that just because we put our faith in Jesus doesn't make us immune to suffering in this broken world, we will face difficulty. And even, you know, Paul acknowledges this in verse number 35 and 36. He says this, he asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he begins to list these potential adversities and these potential adversaries that, that we could, uh, we feel like could separate us from the love of God. So I want to walk through these and I'm just going to kind of group these uh, together just for sake of time. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, those three things, those are really like the result of living in a broken, hostile world, right? We're going to face tribulation and distress and persecution. He goes on to say, uh, or famine or, or nakedness, so food, clothing, uh, those sound familiar? Jesus addressed those things in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew 6. He, you remember he talked about the, the, the lilies and, um, and the birds of the air. He said, God, man, if he provides for those, why would he not provide for you? Your heavenly Father loves you and cares for you, knows you have need of these things. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things shall be added to, unto you. Right? So he addresses these things that God is going to care for our needs. He goes on to, to question. Paul says, uh, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or, or nakedness? And then he ends with these two, or danger or, or sword. So he alludes to you know, the risk of, of death or death itself. The, and, and, and this is when I think of a follower of Christ, the ultimate test of our, of our faith is are you willing to... Uh, stand in the face of death for the sake of the gospel. I think of, of the martyrs of, of old that, that, that faced the sword 
danger and sword. And so, you know, even, even Paul here, he, this is why he quotes from Psalm 44. Uh, if, if you look back at verse number uh, 36, as it is written, he's quoting Psalm 44, verse number 22. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That Psalm 44 was, was Israel crying out to God because of the persecution that the nation was facing because of their faithfulness to God because they were boasting in the Lord. And so Israel comes along and they're basically, the psalmist is crying out, like, God, is this our, is this our lot in life? Are we going to be like, like sheep led to the slaughter? We're always going to be facing death throughout our life because of our faithfulness to you. And so Paul, Paul addresses this. He quotes from Psalm 44. And, and, and let me say it this way. We will suffer distress, but not defeat. This is what Paul is getting at throughout this passage. We will suffer distress, but not defeat. So I want you to think with me for a second. Think about the life of Paul. You know, earlier this year, we went through the book of Acts and we saw all that Paul, as Paul came to faith in Christ and began to uh, spend his life for the sake of the gospel. Remember all of the things that Paul went through. Paul certainly suffered all of these things that, that he writes about. We won't look at it, but 2 Corinthians 11, he, he talks about this. He goes through his, his life and ministry resume. I just want to read you some of the things he said. He said, I dealt with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. This is like Paul's description of his, his, life, his life's resume in living for the Lord. So Paul suffered all of these things. The, the Roman Christians that he was writing to, they would, if they were not already facing some of these things, they would for sure face these things in the short years following this. If you all remember in, in, when we were in the book of Acts, uh, we, we talked about how there were the Christians, the Roman Christians, under the persecution of, of the emperor Nero. There were Christians who were impaled, set upon a, uh, a, uh, a stake, lit on fire for the pleasure and entertainment of Nero. They were sent to the lions. All of these things that happened to those early Roman Christians. Paul experienced these sufferings. These Roman Christians that he's writing to, they would for sure face these sufferings. There are many, many heroes of the faith down through the ages that would face these kind of sufferings. In fact, Hebrews 11, y'all familiar with Hebrews 11? We kind of call it the, the hall of faith. It's, it's, it's God commending these, these men and women down through the ages who were willing to hazard their life for the sake of the gospel. And so he commends them for their faith and he comes down. I want to compare for a second Romans 8, 35 through 39 with Hebrews 11, 35 through 39. Here's what it said of those who, who lived for God. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. They didn't get to see the fulfillment of their faith 
in this lifetime. But y'all, they suffered, right? They faced distress. I would argue more than any of us will ever face in our lifetime. They faced these things. The reality is that we will suffer adversity. We will suffer distress. But Paul says, not defeat. We will not face defeat. Why? He goes on to say it's this. It's because nothing can separate us from God's love. We will suffer distress, but not defeat. Why? Because there's nothing, no one, and nothing that could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 37 to say this. This is one of those incredible statements that we proclaim. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. In other words, we are not victors. We are, we are not victims in the matter. We are victors. We are victors, not victims in all of this. If Christ has you, listen now, if Christ has you, you are secure. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He cannot lose those whom he has saved. Jesus said these words back in John 10, verses 27 through 30. He says this about those who belong to him, his sheep. As, as the shepherd, he says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So imagine this, if you are in Christ, you are in his hand and Jesus says this, no one and nothing is gonna be able to snatch you, or pull you or yank you out of my hand. And then he goes even further and he says, the father who is greater than all, man, he has you in his hand and if you are in the father's hand, no one and nothing can snatch you out of the father's hand. And so we're in the hand of Christ, in the hand of the father and he says, no one and nothing can separate you from my love. I will not lose anyone. You are secure in Christ. Paul goes on in verses 38 and 39, and he says this, for I am sure, I am persuaded, I am convinced, I am certain that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. In case I missed anything, he says, nothing else in all creation, I'm convinced nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says, I'm certain of this, y'all. There's nothing that could separate you from the love of God. In Hebrews 13, verse five, Jesus said these words. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So if you are in Christ, you are secure. There's nothing that could pluck you out of his hand. And so in light of, of all of, of this, listen now, God wants us to have this deep certainty. He wants us to have this deep certainty of his love for us. Listen, he is for you now. He condemns you never. He loves you always. 
Let me say it again. He is for you now. He condemns you never. He loves you always. If you are in Christ this morning, he chose you. He called you. He justified you. He empowers you. He intercedes for you. He is conforming you. He is working all things together for your good. He is finishing what he started in you. He will take you all the way home. He is for you now. He condemns you never. He loves you always. This is the truth of the gospel for you. I want to end with this story I read from Ray Ortland Jr. It's about a guy named Robert Bruce from 17th century. It said this, Robert Bruce, the 17th century Scottish minister, came to breakfast one morning with his family. He sat in silence, but suddenly he said to his daughter next to him, Hold, daughter, hold. My master calls me. He asked for a Bible, but he was dying and his eyesight failed him. Cast me up the eighth of Romans. And he repeated the words as his daughter read to him. I am sure that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Robert Bruce declared these words with his dying breath. He said, God be with you, my children. I've breakfast with you and shall sup with my Lord Jesus this night. And putting his hand on the pages of Romans 8, he said, I die believing these words. I die believing these words. God wants us to have this deep certainty about his love for us that nothing could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so may we come to the end of our lives and may we die believing these words. May we be convinced assured, deeply certain of the love of God for us. That his grace that redeemed us is the same grace that will take us all the way home. Amen? And I want to end with the words of the third verse of Amazing Grace where the songwriter John Newton wrote these words, "'Through many dangers, toils, and snares,' I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Amen? And so, God, thank you for your grace that has chosen us. Thank you for your grace that predestined us to be conformed to your image. Thank you for your grace that calls us that draws us and calls us to yourself. Thank you for your grace that justifies us. Thank you for that grace that will one day glorify us. Lord, thank you for who you are and all that you have done for us. Thank you for the truths of Romans chapter 8, that there is no condemnation for us in Christ, that there is nothing that will separate us from the love of Christ, that you are for us. And God, I know that there's individuals in this room even today that are living in such a way that they feel like you are against them, that you 
that you are neutral, that you don't really care one way or another about them. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would convince us that we would be persuaded like Paul, deeply certain that you are for us, that you love us with a love that we could not manufacture, deserve, or earn. But by your grace, you've lavished your love and your grace upon us. And so, Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't know that grace, I pray that today you would do your spiritual work of drawing people to yourself. God, I pray for all of us that would claim you as Lord and Savior, that say we know you. God, I pray that we would be persuaded this morning that we would rest in your grace, that we would trust the grace that saved us, the grace that keeps us, is that grace that's going to take us all the way home. Lord, thank you for who you are and all that you have done for us. We worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen.